0: Still, want to come up with a cool catchphrase to introduce you. That's fine. I don't need one. And you re- refuse to let me introduce you as the AWS expert every yes. time, so I'm just like losing, losing here. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I am here on a beautiful, hot, sunny evening with Nathan. How are you doing? Nathan? I'm
1: doing well. That was a very engaging intro. I'm impressed. It's also very hot here, but it's super windy, so I've left my patio door open most of the day, and hasn't gotten too hot in my room yet. A uh, few few weeks from now, it's going to be very unpleasant recording this podcast at
0: this time, so enjoying it while I can. Yeah, I'm just waiting for, like, friends back home when I'm like, oh my god, it's 30 degrees, it's so hot. And they'll just complain, and they'll say, it's 48 or 52 can you like STFU? And I'd be like, okay. (laughs) Okay, I will. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pain is relative. And I, yeah, now I'm adapted. But I'm looking forward to, you know, going into some lakes and everything. I was gonna go have a really nice hike this weekend where I get to go in a public lake. But it's supposed to rain. And that's one of the great perks of living in the Pacific Northwest.
1: (laughs) Plenty of rain at this time of year, and then summer kicks in. It just never rains for months, and I don't know people. Yet somehow, people who have always lived here seems to think it still rains a lot. Like, I swear it doesn't. It just just in the winter.
0: Yes, Good. I think that's what they remember the most because that's when seasonal affective disorder, depression, kicks right. in. So that's yeah, and winter seems to last forever. Like it's 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 June now. I want summer. You know what happens in June in India? People stay indoors because they die of heat. And you know what we're doing here? (laughs) I mean,
1: I think it's great. I could stick with this teen spring weather for the whole year. It's my favorite. Yeah. I'll take it. That's true. Maybe we should move to Hawaii. Is that what they do in Hawaii? They just have perfect
0: weather all the time? Well, when I went there in December, they did. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Maybe in summers they're hot, but you know what? Maybe we'll move there for six months and adventures, live in yeah, Canada. do the whole snowbird thing. Exactly. Get. We just need to make sure you know our sponsors and <laughs> people pay us enough. Right. Yeah, the do better stonks. They only go up. So, I like this plan. I don't know if
1: it's uh, in the cards quite yet. Wait for the world to open back up, and then. Uh, winters in Hawaii, podcast right from the beach.
0: Yeah, everyone, please pay us. In the meantime, (laughs) did anything cool, interesting, or frustrating happen to you in the past week?
1: Yeah, so I've got something frustrating, Uh, and then I think I had something cool. Yeah, I do. So the cool thing is gonna be as expected, so I'll do that last go with the frustrating is it yeah. go with the okay. <laughs> I was not going to mention it but I had nothing cool and I was like I don't want to just complain about something frustrating but the frustrating thing is work related which is or like development related in general which is frustrating when there are people who think that their bug reports are good enough to just bypass QA and go directly into the current sprint so there's always that person in some company that is just like I know how to report this bug and no, I don't need QA to replicate it first. I'm just going to load it into the sprint. And because the rules at the company are bug reports have to be reproduced by by QA first and then they're loaded, a developer like myself may pick up a bug that's actively in the sprint, assuming it's been reproduced, spend a few hours being like, I can't seem to reproduce this in any way. And then finally reach out to QA and be like, how do we, is there something missing from this ticket? What's going on? I can't reproduce this. And they're like, I don't know, I've never seen this ticket. So that's not great. Really, it basically, this is simultaneously a shout-out to how great QA is, again, because I keep doing that. Love having a good QA team. And an anti-shout-out to people who bypass QA, because that's really frustrating. But the cool thing, I was listening to an older episode of The Salt Cast, which is a uh, Rocket League related podcast, and they were interviewing a guy who runs a YouTube channel called Rocket Science. And this channel combines two of my current interests because it's a guy who's going through school for software development and physics, I think, and has a channel about Rocket League where he He works also on the primary Rocket League mod called Bakka's Mod. And so they have a bunch of plugins and stuff that they support. But he does a ton of essentially science about Rocket League where there'll be myths perpetuated or even things from Psyonix, the company that made Rocket League and maintains it. Uh, They'll say like, our hitboxes behave in this way. And then he'll run the code and look through everything and uh, basically set up Manual inputs with a bunch of, uh, or sorry, stable, standardized inputs by like locking the frame rate and setting up the inputs frame by frame and being like, actually, they behave like this, and release those as videos. And so it's always, it's just really interesting having somebody talk about the, um, the game that I'm currently playing all the time while also talking about the like, scientific development side of the game, which is what I do professionally. So it was a cool intersection of two things, it's pretty niche, but at the same time, I thought it was cool. So Rocket Science, I recommend it for anyone who is uh, in the same weird little nerdy niche that I'm in. What about you?
0: That sounds pretty cool. Also, anybody who knows you knows you probably like things that are really yes. <laughs> <Like> the Yes. The <laughs> there's no question about it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I have a cool and a frustrating thing. I'll start with the cool thing. So I am constantly in love with the command line tool that Amazon built for EKS. And no, this is not some weird pitch. They're not sponsoring us so far, which is sad. But EKS CTL, it just, cause I generally dislike cloud formation. I love what it gives you but I don't wanna learn another YAML syntax for a proprietary thing, write complicated long instructions. Uh, and seems like that's what you have to do if you wanna build a Kubernetes cluster. And if you ever build one, you know there's a lot of moving components. And I don't wanna do all that crap. So you know what I do? I go to EKSCTL. ctl I define a very simple YAML file of only components that are relevant to Kubernetes and it translates them into relevant EKS, uh, cloud formation language, creates cloud formation templates, so you still have configuration as code, and then runs them. And I recently had to use it to scale up my cluster, and all I had to do was change the number from nodes, um, desired amount from two to three, and huzzah. And I had a nicely vertically scaled cluster, which was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so that was something cool that I used. And something frustrating is Beanstalk. <laughs> uh-huh. Say more. <laughs> yeah. So generally, I love Elastic Beanstalk because that was one of their first offerings when they, when they introduced EC2. They said, oh, man, oh, my God, EC2 is too complicated for people to put everything together. So here's Beanstalk. It ties up everything really nicely together, except when it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it does not tell you properly what the error is. It just says, oh, your environment is in a bad state. Oh, no, it's, it went to severe. Now it's deep. <laughs> sorry. And you click on give me the application logs, especially if you're running a containerized application. It'll say, oh, okay, here's logs from every single process that's running on the machine, good luck, and it was just really hard and frustrating. And especially if it if it's a container dying and restarting over and over, it'll give you logs from all the dead containers. So you don't know which one's the latest one. And again, very frustrating. <laughs> so that's that's been my latest problem with Beanstalk where I want it to run a certain command before the container spins up. It gives me the syntax. I run it. It does not run the command and the command doesn't behave like it should because I need it to run before and after the container has been spun up, And there's nothing to run anything post deployments. There is no post webhook, which baffles my mind how do you design something where it has pre-hooks, hook steering execution, and not post-hooks. Um, so one day if I ever work for the Elastic Beanstalk team, that'll be, my, that'll be on my charter. I will go and fight for it to see if I can get that implemented. Um, and then another cool thing, your Rocket League banter over weeks have, you know, made me sort of go back into gaming again a little bit. And I've been doing a lot of VR gaming. So there's this scene called Beat Saber mm-hmm. where music come at you and you fight it with blocks. And I have I'm playing on hard mode now, which I thought when I started the game was impossible and now I'm competitively doing relatively okay there's no real competitive thing on there but I play online with other people and I seem to like kick most of their butts Um, (laughs) except some some people just like completely obliterate me and like some of the songs I still not used to but I'm like very very happy and they just changed the UI and it's somehow weirdly like material design combined with some weird neon mixing and I love it. It's just, it's it's so cool, and I so wanted to put that in my cool section. I love it, whatever style of design it's called, because I have no eye for design, but I love yeah. it. It's great. There, so that's. What
1: there happened. was one Beat Saber video I watched multiple years ago of Rasputin, and that's what I think of every single time that I hear Beat Saber. Just some scantily clad, animegated chick, just
0: beaten up blocks to the sound of
1: Rasputin. There
0: we go. You know, I'll, I'll mention that as a frustrating thing as well. When BeatSaver was first launched, you could look up any song on YouTube, and it would randomly generate the blocks based on the beats. But now, it has selected music. YouTube section doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get normal songs that everybody has had listened to, you have to buy the music pack. Oh. And that's really annoying, because I don't want to pay $20 to listen to Green Day that I've already listened to a billion times. <laughs> I just want to beat some blocks with my Sabre, mm-hmm. with all the songs. So it's really frustrating, but I don't know, the songs they have on it that they own are also pretty good. So they they get a pass.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure removing that feature makes it seem like a big bummer, but like I wouldn't have assumed it would be there. So a bit
0: weird yeah why can't? Why is there so many legal red tape why can't people just enjoy <laughs> the music whatever they want yeah maybe YouTube pays for it I don't know they seem to have a lot of money no definitely not yeah Google's broke don't invest in Alphabet this is this channel is also giving out stock advice no no no
1: this is not financial <laughs> advice <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah our, our sponsor is r slash wall street bets heck yeah all right so
1: again this is kind of your big episode i mean it's not database optimization so we're not quite there yet Uh, it's also not the data episode which we did do and you could listen to that where we just talk about how important data is but this is an episode about system design and that's sort of your bread and butter you are the yaml doctor of the two of us Uh, You know how to spin up them containers, create those replicas, and we're going to talk a bit about that today, some of the basics of how systems are architected.
0: Yeah, and yeah, so the, the idea really came from me wanting to do a system design podcast before realizing describing diagrams in voice is really hard. Um, So I figured what we could do instead is just talk about different components and things you keep in mind while doing system design, and perhaps next time you design a system, one of these things will pop in your head, and you'll make the next big website that doesn't hopefully suck. (laughs) That's the hope. That's the aim. That's That's the dream, having a website that is properly balanced out and doesn't crash or isn't too slow. Without costing you too much, it's the the DevOps dream, the DevOps mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I so what I figured is we'll just touch on different components, and we'll sort of go in a linear fashion, and from there certain things can probably have little misdirects or directions here and there, that we just discuss because we're nerds and this is a nerdy podcast, and you, you know, we'll we'll talk about that.
1: And how far do we want to go into like principles behind it as far as, you know, why you might choose to do load balancing or like the idea behind why these things even exist versus this is kind of how it's structured and these are the services you might use. Because there can be a lot of deep tangents there and I think it would take up quite a bit of time.
0: Uh, Honestly, I think we can talk about the, the principle and the reason behind the principle and then maybe we'll do like separate episodes and series for different technologies and compare them on these. And even in this episode, if we can't touch all the system design components, we'll just do another one because we seem to put out series and people seem to like it. Um, so let's make sure we we touch all all that's important sure. and relevant. All right.
1: And so we're working from our pre-show discussion. We're kind of doing a web app discussion.
0: Start with that. Sure. Yeah. All right. So yeah, let's let's start off with something so again, like that.
1: I go to my browser, and I type in dobetter.club. What happens? At, what happens after that?
0: Oof. Um. So, let's let's take a normal, normal design system and not like actually what happens in dobetter.club because it's very small and very cheap and. That is a good
1: point. Yeah. Yeah, that was an example <laughs> domain. There's not a whole lot going on there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but if anybody wants to hire us to deploy cheap sites, you know where to get us, <laughs> Do costs like 80 cents a month to host. It's, it's crazy. It's great. Um, anyways, yeah, so the first thing that happens is the DNS gets resolved. You, your browser only understands numbers because internet is also nerds. Uh, so what it does, it goes to DNS servers to say for dobetter.club, give me the IP address and then they get an IP address and then they go to the IP address Am I, should I just keep going and then we like, you you stop me or like, how are we doing this? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, if we're, we're probably going to talk specifically mostly about AWS to keep it somewhat narrow, Yes. Uh, but for example, something to keep in mind with dns lookups in aws you can also point to like different aws services or uh, you can do load balancing at the dns level um you can do canary deployments at the dns level you can do failovers at the dns level there's a lot of stuff you can do at the dns level if you're solving simple problems on a small scale uh, or even with failover at a larger scale these are this is a this is the first entry point and it actually can be a bit more useful you the problem you're trying to solve, you may not need a full load balancer, for example, if for your mm-hmm. particular problem, it might be fine to just do load balancing with DNS. And so the way that, that would work, at least in AWS, is you can list multiple things. You have a entry that instead of pointing to a single uh, endpoint, it's going to have a list of them and it will just ro- either rotate through them or you can do weighted and it'll weight them appropriately. And so you could do like a 5% canary, have things, traffic being sent there, and then you know, oh, everything started exploding on the canary, let's not roll this out to the other uh, location. So there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with DNS, but the basics are absolutely the way that Guillen described it, which is, I have a domain, but where what is the IP for it? And that's the purpose of DNS.
0: Yeah, and yeah, those are like excellent points on how Route 53 works. As you all also probably know, Nathan's now like the certified <laughs> AWS So I should actually person. mention this. So,
1: <laughs> so I did, one of my things I mentioned on a previous episode was that I wanted to take all of May off from doing anything too focused on like work related things where I was overloading my brain with that. It was really focused on personal stuff for May. And I've done that. So I haven't thought about any of this AWS stuff in 31 days. This is my first time trying to discuss it, so if I forget absolutely everything, uh, that's my excuse. So I'm, pra- I'm yeah. explaining it with that. But
0: you've had the DevOps mindset now; it never escapes. That's right. You. Yeah, you will never forget any of this. Established
1: twenty nineteen. In the exactly. front DevOps mindset.
0: Yeah, it's it's like how your certificate will never expire because they know. <laughs> yeah, it says it'll expire there... in three years, but it doesn't. No. Yeah, no, the, the spirit behind it remains. That's right. Three years seems pretty generous given the amount of stuff they put out every few weeks. Yes, I will. Yeah, uh, it'll, most of it will be irrelevant pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, we will not touch on that. We'll stay at the higher level principles. So, yeah, uh, DNS is where it gets resolved. Based on your DNS provider, you could have different things. But with the very basic case, you generally have a domain name pointing to an IP address. And so, do club gets. Translated to an IP address. And in a normal, very basic deployment, that IP address will be to a load balancer or a reverse proxy. What the load balancer does and exists for is based on. So that it. How am I explaining this really badly? (laughs) It does what it sounds like it does. It (laughs) balances load. Exactly. (laughs) So if your website has 10,000 users and you have one machine serving all of it, Maybe the CPU in RAM is too high and it can't handle it. So you create two or five, 10 different machines to handle it. And then the load balancer is the smart smarty pants that sits there and is the bouncer. And so it says, okay, you have the VIP pass, you go to that server versus you go to some other server. And it just redirects traffic and it handles the communication.
1: Yeah, so if you have an application that is set up for distributed, running in a distributed environment, then you can have, a load balancer, wrap around all those instances, and if you get a massive traffic spike, then you can watch well, it, that be auto scaling, so never mind, but the point is if you have, you don't accidentally send all of your traffic to one uh, server, assuming you've set this up correctly, you can distribute that traffic across multiple servers, and keeps all your servers much happier than having one that's just churning and having to Vertically scale that one. So instead of having to just have one Gigantic instance to handle the maximum traffic that you might receive instead you can have it spread across multiple smaller servers
0: Exactly and like depending on your use case the load balancer Can be configured to do load balancing differently if your application has certain tie-ups that only server one or server two or whatever can handle if they have some sort of even persistence on disk, you could have your load balancer, say, for a given set of requests, only set it to load balancer one. Yeah, And
1: yeah, so like there's, yeah. uh, specific to AWS, I remember there's also stickiness. So you can have, like if a particular client is hitting, uh, say, an endpoint and it, or actually if it, they, let's say they logged in, because this is the example I kept seeing in all the questions for the AWS thing. Users are logged in and then they keep being logged back out. And the question is always, all right, they're essentially being redirected to a different instance behind the load balancer each time. And you can solve it a number of different ways, but one of them is using stickiness. So it'll just make sure that they always get routed to the same instance, instead of going to instance one, then going to instance three, and then going to instance five, and then going to instance two, and they just get logged out every single time they make a request. And then if they hit the same one, they'll still be good, but if they hit a different one, they'll be logged back out.
0: Yeah, it's because in the ye olden days, they would always have local caching on the server and not a centralized caching mechanism. So they'll generate some sort of authorization token. That only server know the only server that generated it knows about it. (laughs) Because they had, they used to have like just horizontal scaling on everything. They just say, oh, throw more money at the server and more RAM at it and it'll be good. Uh, before they realized vertical scaling needs your application to be more stateless and whatnot. I think you flipped and those, right?
1: Vertical scaling will be uh, buying bigger hardware. Yes,
0: yeah. yes, I did. Yeah, so vertical scaling, yeah. And while we're on here, let's explain those. Yeah, vertical scaling, you in, you throw more money and CPU and hardware at the same machine. And then in horizontal scaling, you have less specs, but divided across multiple physical or virtualized machine and environments. Um, Yeah, so like, yeah, when we started going from vertical scaling to horizontal scaling in the new age, uh, a lot of those applications started having that issue. So that's when stickiness was really helpful to load balance, but not really, but kind of, Um, yeah. So for stuff like that, you may need it yeah, there are, and there are other ways of solving that now but it yes. still is an option that's available exactly it's it it was the time when devops and dev and dev and ops didn't talk to each other very well so they were just like oh this is how this works sure we'll just do it this way
1: but, <laughs> yeah the dev um, the dev solution <laughs> there is it's going to a different server make it go to the same one yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. it works on my local machine and my local machine is one machine yeah so do better. Um, Yeah, and then so from the load balancer, it goes to some sort of application layer. The application layer could be written and divided up to based on your application need. It could be a microservices architecture, which is Nathan's favorite architecture, (laughs) or it could be a normal one, but just different, it could be a mesh pattern, it could be different ways, but you decide how your application layer is divided. I don't know how much in depth we want to go, but like in general, this is where your business logic gets processed.
1: Yeah. So I think there's, we should probably at least, cause I don't think we've done an episode about microservices, describe the basic principle of it. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, instead of having a monolithic app, so all of your, all of your code and all of your application logic living in one place, you are instead separating out the concerns of your application into different services, which then communicate with each other. So more specifically, oftentimes you'll have a private network connecting all of your services that gives super low latency connections between them, but they behave independently. And so what that means is you can independently scale them. So how Guillen was talking about like horizontal and vertical scaling, you could, if you have one service that has a ton of traffic going to it, you can independently scale that single service. So if you have a ton of people buying stuff, but a smaller fraction of that is logging in, then you can have far fewer instances, far fewer uh, or far less um, resources spent on the login service and then far more spent on processing payments. And so that way you don't have to have one application that has to run at the capacity required for whatever part of that application is requiring the most bandwidth at that time. So we haven't gotten to the automatic scaling of it yet, but conceptually speaking, even if they were static, then you could say like, we need more instances of this part of the service or this part of the business application and far fewer of this other part that barely gets used. So it saves you, cost in that respect, and the idea behind it is that it keeps things more simplified so that you can have simpler services that do a specific thing instead of having one bigger application that's often harder, or one bigger service that's harder to maintain over time, collects tech debt, uh, is, it has to be deployed all at once, these sorts of things. And then it comes with the big trade-offs of maintaining those services. So, when services are all separated, if you have different teams on each of those services, that's not so bad. Uh, You know, if you're, for example, you mentioned, oh, if you ever work on the Beanstalk team, like, if you have a team that's just for one service, in the case of looking from the outside in, that's how it appears to look at Amazon, then you're like, all right, cool, we're responsible for Beanstalk. We're not responsible for AWS. And same thing in your application. All right, we're responsible for the login flow. We're, cu- we're responsible for the um, customer acquisition like landing page flow. We're responsible for payment processing. Whatever it is that you're responsible for, if you have one team responsible for that, that's great. Because they can write it in whatever language they want. They can write it however best serves that requirement. But if you have one team, which is what I'm currently doing, one team maintaining many services, it creates a lot of overhead in management and dependencies between services now become important. I'm trying to maintain things that are backwards compatible with one another so that they can be deployed independently. These kinds of things come up as complexities. But in general, it's considered, at this point at least, that it's still better than monoliths. Uh, did I miss anything, yet?
0: um Nothing that we don't need to do. We wouldn't cover in a special episode, because I made lots of notes. We, I'm getting tons of content here on like individual other episodes. Perfect. And I think we definitely need one of just the, microservices the, the ranks, and yeah. other ways. Yeah, how the pros and cons, um, and all that, all that good stuff. There's so much to say. Um, <laughs> of course, microservices are better. Um, <laughs> to find out more, listen to one of our future episodes. Um, yeah, and then so once application layer processes all the information, where does it go? We probably need some sort of databases. Uh, I say databases as in plural because based on our use case, you might need more than one.
1: Yeah, so more generally speaking, right, you've got your entry point to the application, which we were talking about as DNS, to dis- or that's discovery. You've got your entry point to the application, and then the application that does the processing, so the communication between whatever came in and whatever needs to go back out. Uh, and then there's the persistence layers. And so those can be things like caches, those can be semi-persistent things like if you're using Redis as a database, um, like an in-memory database, and, and then there's like regular old NoSQL and uh, relational databases. So I'm gonna pass the baton back to Gian for this part. Tell us about how we should think about databases at a high level
0: yeah so the way I generally break them down is uh, the two big ones data I can afford to lose and I need fast caching and data I can't afford to lose and need to do more thinking about that's the more persistent one so caching redis literally any system design interview question anything you ever talk about in your life just say the magic word Redis and they'll just let you in. It's, it is the best. People have tried, Memcached has been in the game for so long trying, so many people, so many apps. Redis keeps winning, cause it's awesome. I deployed it on a container with like 16 megabytes of memory and it worked and it was great. And it kept storing everything that was needed of it in 16 megabytes. And if you need That's like thousands If you pros. need
1: HIPAA compliance, which if you're in healthcare communications, you may, uh, Redis has that, and Memcache does not. Just,
0: yeah, Redis is great. If, if you have to do any sort of caching, look into Redis first, or look at why you make certain life decisions. <laughs> just, it's one or the yeah, other. Yeah, <laughs> so if
1: you're not familiar with how it works either, it's just a key value store. So it's kind of like a giant object. Exactly. You throw in keys of values, you can do things like uh, scoring for scored sets and uh, get access things in a more dynamic way, but generally you can just think of it as one giant dictionary and it lives in memory and it's super fast.
0: Yeah, because RAM RAM is great and everything stays in RAM. Like the slowest thing about fetching data from a Redis database is the network lag, (laughs) which again is just crazy to me and (laughs) I love it. anyways i'll stop geeking over that and then the other one is the more persistent layer of your data and then depending on your use case i usually break them down into three things one data oh my god this needs to be completely safe secure important this cannot be messed around with like payments or orders and for stuff like that you use databases that are asset compliant compliant and generally are sql databases so Things like MySQL, Postgres, Oracle SQL, because you're enterprise and you've sold your soul. Um, Microsoft SQL Server, because you're an Azure fanboy and can't seem to move off from it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Damn. I don't have strong opinions. <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically, ACID compliant. If you want to know what that is, go Google it. We'll do a different episode on it. Basically, it just ensures that your data is in the most perfect real-time form possible. It doesn't get messed around, it doesn't get corrupted. When you write to it and somebody reads from it, the data is the exact same, within even microseconds of um, differences. So that kind of data, do that. If you just have a whole bunch of data that you wanna maybe do some sort of analysis later on, like tons of logs or I don't know, just information about people's preferences, maybe you wanna log every time somebody looks at a cat mat on your shopping website, and you just know this person will sell anything with a cat face on it, and you wanna do analysis on it, have something like a data warehouse. So a giant, generally NoSQL thing, Uh, could be like Amazon Dynamo, or some other components like that. where you just throw things at it like even apache kafka is pretty great for that you just throw data at it cassandra is also a big one that they use Um, and it just it can just store a whole metric ton of data and is really great for coring it gives mostly eventual consistency it doesn't guarantee that the moment you give it the data the moment it's present for coring but it just ingests and updating information on it is really hard and you don't look at it generally for like a while and not immediately real time. Um, And then the third type is like moving data uh, that you need more time series based and that's when you have things like Elasticsearch or what's that other one people seem to like that has a black thing, Grafana. Uh, Now Grafana is the UI, uh, but Prometheus, yeah. So you use something like Prometheus, Elasticsearch uh, to do that. Those are the big ones I generally categorize them as uh, of course, when you're doing normal RDBMS, depending on the uptime and the flexibility of a data, people do choose Mongo and things like other NoSQL, which are pretty close to asset compliant, just because they don't have to deal with schemas. Um, but yeah, that's where usually the distinction is. Uh, data I can't afford to lose, data I don't need to look at right now, and then data that gives me information on a constant, consistent basis more for recording history.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the, one of the things I think about for uh, caches is data that can be regenerated, can be refetched, these sorts of things, but is expected to be used again. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can cache everything if you want to, but then you have to worry about things expiring and having a stale cache. So if you do something like where every single time that something's fetched from the database, you throw it in the cache on the way back out, you can do that, but then you also have to know, like, is this something that can go stale? And do I have to time it out and worry about those sorts of problems? But generally speaking, that's what I'm thinking about is like, can this be recreated? So again, going back to the AWS examples that I kept being giving, it was things like, should we, ca- or we have these uh, thumbnails that we're generating and we're caching them. Is that a good decision? It's like, yeah, cause we can regenerate these. We don't care if they get lost. Uh, we still have the original files in the S3, we can regenerate these with the lambda functions that we're using if we need to, but in the meantime, we'll just keep fetching from the cache, not pay for all that bandwidth.
0: Yeah, and the moment you mention caching for images, guess what pops on everybody's mind? A CDN, that's, that's correct. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nobody, Nobody answered, but okay because it's just the two of us. Yeah. Somebody at um, home, yeah.
1: or driving in their car, because I imagine that's what people do. Or
0: working out. Mm, that's
1: they're true. Just like Working
0: they're out, like, yeah. We've definitely had that feedback. Like, oh, it's definitely a CDN, bro. And then you were like, yeah. a
1: CDN.
0: And they just started curling harder, yeah. and you know, their sets are going to go up. Um, but yeah, a CDN is great. It's, it stands for a content delivery network. And generally, it's used for static assets that don't change. And a great thing about CDN is it's load balancer on someone else's dime, basically. Uh, So what these people or services generally have is if your service is global, uh, if people from all across the world are tuning in like the Do Better Dev Show, (laughs) uh, (laughs) then you want to use a CDN because then all these companies, let's say AWS has CloudFront, Yes, uh, that they have servers all across the world, and then depending on who's trying to access the CDN, they get the server closest to them, so that someone in Europe isn't waiting on the network lag to get something from U.S. Except for the first person. They probably Except they probably for, yeah. still need to
1: wait. But then it's in the <laughs> cache, and they can just get it from there.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that's where the that principle works. Maybe, maybe what you do is every time you adds a new information like that, you have a test suite running on the production server and then your test suite is the one that always waits and actual users don't. Could do that. Maybe this is a new deployment technology that will get huge blown up from this podcast. Yeah, it's
1: going to be the next big
0: thing. Microservices are
1: old, automated test suites (laughs) to preload, keep the CDN hot are the new thing.
0: Yeah, um, we'll call it post-deployment bot user. Okay does stuff makes site, makes site faster. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think it's catchy. It rolls off the tongue. Uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be the front page of Hacker News in a couple of days.
0: And it's an easier framework. All you need to do is give it a HTTP endpoint, and it's just a not groovy. What's that? Jeb. Yeah, it's just a Jeb app. That loads the page in a headless framework so that it hits your endpoint and you're done. Easy money. Easy money. I I hey, you're just so easy to like get on board with these <laughs> things. Because you have the, have the DevOps. So if anybody's interested in funding this, <laughs> reach reach out to me. Um but yeah, that's so that's generally how a normal application end to end in my head gets set up and then you have other awesome things on it like auto scaling you've mentioned it a couple of mm-hmm. times would you like to yeah, on that
1: yeah it? yeah so if you're talking about the concept of auto scaling generally which is what I should actually start with the idea is your the needs of your applications resources change over time so it's not like you always have exactly the same number of users doing the exact same demand of providing the exact same demand on your application at all times. So if it's varied enough, it may be to the point where you can say do your core workload or you could do your core workload on like three instances of some part of your application. But at peak workloads, you have to go up to something like eight instances. And if there weren't auto scaling rules, you might just have to run it with eight so that you can always handle the peak load. But the way that auto-scaling handles a lot of this stuff is it allows you to say something like, we're going to always have three, that's our minimum, and then we're going to automatically scale up as demand changes or scale back down as demand changes. And so the ways that you can do that are you can have things that are like alarm-based where, all right, the CPU utilization is too high, spin up two more instances. And then it'll wait a certain amount of time and if it's now below your threshold so like all right now the cpu is too low remove one instance and then it'll wait a bit and see what happens with the cpu and if it's still too low then it'll bring down another one you're back down to where you started so this keeps your application dynamic so that it can properly serve traffic save you money so you're not paying for all this extra uh, resources while the bandwidth is low and the One of the ways that you can do that is with auto-scaling groups in AWS. Uh, Outside of setting the minimum, the maximum, and then an alert, you can also just set things like target rules and just say, like, maintain roughly this metric on this container. And so it'll say, all right, average of all of your running containers, this metric has this value. And then it'll uh, add and remove containers as needed to keep that metric roughly where it needs to be. So it's it's such a uh, simple concept that solves such an annoying problem in infrastructure. So I th- I think it's cool because it again sort of like load balancing it does what it says on the tin. It automatically scales your application.
0: Yeah, and and in addition to having the the performance based for its CPU RAM, you can also have time based. Right. You can say my website doesn't get any traffic at night because people like to sleep. So let's just bring it all the way down to one server so that there is an uptime and we can save costs.
1: Yes, yeah, I I remembered that at the beginning and got distracted in my explanation. But one of the things that they asked about a lot, again, on the AWS course was like, we have a big sale coming up on Friday at 6 p.m. How should we prepare for it? And it's like, all right, well, based on last year's numbers, we know we have this. So we're going to schedule an auto scaling event two hours beforehand and gradually start scaling up as we approach the expected peak time. That way we don't have a moment when our system is pretty much toppling over as it tries to spin up new instances, especially if it takes a while for your instances to actually spin up. So you can do it both ways. Yeah. You can be like prepared for low schedule low uh, workloads and also schedule higher ones.
0: Yeah. Nathan, then why doesn't just all the big companies whose website seems to crash all the time do this on peak times they need to do better they need to do better they need to hire the do better club owners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just go in there in their extremely complicated infrastructure just look at their load balance and be like it's set to 98 it should really be 102 just add more four servers download more ram. com. Download more um Yeah, and then uh, final thing on my list for system design components that everybody should keep in mind is logging and alerting. And those are the most crucial things you need to add once everything's in place, because they ensure things stay in place. Um, so. Yeah, having your logging is extremely important so that you know if something when something goes wrong, you know why. Or if you wanna identify patterns, you wanna maybe see how much time people are spending on certain pages and like Nathan mentioned before, on different components that you may wanna scale up or down the, the services on, uh, then logging is really great for that. Alerting, on the other hand, is very important if you somehow get I don't know, 10 auto-scaling servers and it just keeps going up and things are breaking and it keeps going up and you're at home sipping martini because you think your DevOps infrastructure is unbreakable and then you need these. So you get a PagerDuty alert on your phone or Datadog alert and you start freaking out and you start working on it. So alerting is what you put in to ruin your time at home so that when you go back to work, you don't get fired. Exactly, yeah.
1: So I don't know about you, you might disagree, but if I were recommending where to start with something like alerting, it would be at least make sure that you have health check and liveness probes on your containers so that, for example, if they're in a crash loop back off situation and then you're listening for that and logging out somewhere, you actually know that things are not serving any traffic. Um, Because if it's just Silently doing that in the background, and your application is down, and you don't know unless you try to use it, that's going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, like, yeah, very basic alert as always is it up? Mm-hmm. There's websites, I think it's, and you can set up, which basically just do an HTTP poll on your website. So, even if you don't want to go through the process of setting up Datadog and like system level monitoring, have a basic check so that it hits your website every couple of seconds and if it or, or minutes, and if it goes down more than three minutes in a row or something, it should send you an alert. You should know when your service is down before your customers do, um, or else they will definitely tell you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't want to do too much into logging and alerting right now because I feel like I can go into a lot of tangents. Um, but yeah, do you think we've missed, or can you think of any other system design component layers?
1: We didn't touch too much on the specifics of the application layer. We kind of glazed over that, but I think that's probably yeah. fine. Like, there's a lot of different things you can put in there as far as services go. Like, exactly. Um, it's, it's really noisy over here right now. Uh, as far as things offered by AWS, like if you wanted to make a REST API and you're going to use you know, API Gateway backed by Lambda, or you're going to use your own application logic, like there's tons of stuff we could go into, but I think generally speaking, if you're saying like, this box on this diagram is my application that holds my business logic, I think that's probably enough at this point. Everything else around yeah. that is going to be what we already discussed and what's around that is
0: everything to do with virtual private clouds and networking. <laughs> exactly and and like that sort of falls into the API layer and microservices or different services based architecture and so these are like some of the points I've made on like individual episodes we can do based on the amount of things we've had to talk uh, is like different t- type of infrastructure um, different components you can use to supplement your application so things like payments, authorization authentication uh, there are already made services for that AWS within or otherwise open source that we can touch on. We can touch on different types of databases, their pros and cons, and get in more depth with them. We can talk in depth about logging and alerting different technologies, how to visualize them, properly use them for a RCA. And yeah, just, and then I've, we've talked about this. I'll sort of prematurely announce it, uh, but we'll, we're will we going to have some sort of series coming up on talking about just different AWS services. Because once you talk about the principles, you should also talk about what things to use to implement those principles. And we're gonna do that because we're awesome. And you guys are awesome. And
1: you won't guess by most of the names of the services anyway. So it's not like it's obvious. Uh, there's there's a handful mm-hmm. that are that you read them and you go and then you read the explanation for you guys and you go, oh that's nice. It actually does what it says. But most of them it's just a bunch of letters, and it's hard to keep them all straight.
0: Yep. I'm like trying to see at the, at the moment of recording this, how many services exist on AWS, and I, how many... There's a, over 200 products. Okay, nice. As of this episode, for the amount of principles we've mentioned, most of them are covered in those 200s. But there's multiple services doing the same thing, so yes, it's a not obvious, b very confusing because some of those work with each other, so we're gonna try to help entangle some of that because we've suffered a lot at the hands <laughs> of AWS. Yes,
1: but I think I think that's pretty much good for overall basics at this point.
0: I think so too. If you guys think we've missed anything or would like us to touch on anything, you know, hit us up you got you got our socials you got it, yeah, yeah keep,
1: keeping in mind email. that there will be more specific episodes so not necessarily yeah. like you guys didn't talk about this specific piece of the service
0: because if we did that we'd be here for no no part. do do that as well just oh, just don't send, send that, that to and then yeah because yeah, then <laughs> at least we'll know which ones we can put out first there you go. if there's higher demand for something Fair enough Give me all the data. I need data. I love data. (laughs) It's going to be running business intelligence on the comment section. 100%. (laughs) If they weren't all spam so far, I think I would have gotten some good metrics out of it. But just knowing it's spam is also a good metric. I suppose. Yeah. It can be discarded. But I think that's enough
1: of that. I need to know what you've done better, what you're going to do better. And... uh, how you're basically, how you going to keep this recursive process going. Uh,
0: yeah, there is, this is the only recursive process with no exit condition. Or I guess the exit condition is death. So I'm going to keep doing better without that morbid note. <laughs> um, what I did better was I said I'll do one hard hike. And people who are actual like hikers on the West Coast will probably disagree with me on this. But... I did the Garibaldi lake, it was my birthday, I wanted to do something memorable and I found it kind of hard because it's about 19 kilometers with a 1000 meter elevation or a little over 1000 meters and I got tired man like I, it took me like two and a half hours to get up top because I just pushed through Um, and I wanted to go dip in the very like cold lake What I didn't realize, this is Canada and it was all snowed up there and the lake was snowed in and it was frozen. So I couldn't do that because I don't live in Greenland and I I don't know. Or Iceland, sorry, that's where Wim Hof is from. I don't live in Iceland and I'm not crazy. So I didn't do that, but I will make sure to, you know, maybe end of summer go back and do it. But I was very happy that I did a complete hard hike and I did it on like one bottle of water and I didn't like die or anything. It was just my knee. So pretty great. Um, I had a wrist pain that I know I mentioned before so one of my do-betters was to hands off keyboard a bit more. So after work I just don't touch my computer anymore. I will either read or maybe talk to a friend or play VR Uh, but not PlayStation because that's also somehow the controller is making my wrist pain worse so VR is the future because my hands are somehow not hurting Um, yeah and I said I was gonna work on my pull-ups I got them to 8 which is pretty great for me so I'm gonna keep working at them and yeah so that's part of my do better I'm gonna continue doing the pull-ups hopefully by end of July which is I'm thinking is a more reasonable goal, I can hit 10. I can hit 10 for two sets, and then I'll be okay. Um, And I want to, given the amount of sun and everything we've been having, I'm going to set a goal for going out once every weekend. The stretch goal is to do both days, um, but the realistic goal is to at least go out once. What qualifies as going out? Oh, um something that I can't just access on foot Mm -hmm. so it'll be either hiking something or checking out some new place and even within COVID restrictions I'm still allowed to go in my health zone so I'm going to and given I live in a bigger city I have a bigger zone to go explore so restaurants are opening up again I could try out some new cuisines I could go hiking with my friends and if I my friends don't come I can just rent a car and go hike myself and yeah maybe do a little bit more biking and everything but yes I want to make sure it's neither me just sitting at home playing video games because I adventure for that or I don't know just going to the nearest park sitting there reading a book because I'll do that anyways in ventures too at times so I'm just gonna make sure I do the same thing but somewhere new so that I can have a little bit more local feel of knowing where I live yeah and finish the book like thanks for the feedback I'm like 70% through and I keep going back certain chapters because I like it so I think at this point I'm just going to turn the book back to the library and buy my own copy mm. because I think this is one of those where I'll be going back to it over and over um yeah so that's that's mine. Well, How did you enhance your life? Well, before I get to that, okay. what's
1: making this book so memorable
0: and important? It's, it just feels very practical examples. It's like feedback is one of those things where, um, with all humility, <laughs> I've mostly only ever had positive feedback. Like, I generally never really get negative feedback at work. Uh, even in interpersonal relationships most of the time Um, so when I do get something even slightly negative or something I I feel very attacked immediate defense mechanisms popping up I can live alone you don't have to be in my life kind of things Uh, and this book has like certain examples which are also triggering me but since there's no one around I can observe myself and just say oh my god this is what's happening and they're right and I need to do better at observing these and catching all these um, instances. So that's where it makes me want to go back and read certain things because I enjoyed those sections. And then I look at them and say, aha, okay, that makes sense. And I can be more mindful of these. Um, and then I think I'm going to start reading them annually or the book or when even the highlights I do um, when I have like salary negotiations or my peer-to-peer feedback or review kind of things because i do i'm expecting more critical review in my work future uh i want it and i i'm going to actively ask for it and i just need to make sure i'm not butthurt about it when i right. am <laughs> ready. just yeah. begging for
1: feedback and then just don't take it well at all
0: yeah because i'm just like even if there's like a thing that's five percent bothering you about me tell me and then if they do, and that somehow still improves my work performance or it and gets me even like more collaboratively in line with the person, uh, then, you know, that's still a win for me. I like my work teams. I like to keep my teams that I'm with happy. Um, so if there is even something slightly that I don't know about that's bothering them, uh, like me talking too much about VR or something. Then i like, okay, this is not the person to talk about it. And that's cool. I'll just talk to them about other things or not talk to them, whatever their preferences. Uh, but within the work scenario kind of thing, or maybe they don't think I take enough responsibility for something or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do that more. I don't think I'm ready yet where I'm going to do that with my friends or personal relationships. Uh, because if those go sour, I, d- I don't have anything else to... Re- Latch on to, at least at work, I can have the coworker thing uh-huh. to always have. Um, but yes, once I get to a better emotional maturity, maybe I'll do that in my personal relationships. But, like, guys, how do I do better? Mm. What about who bothers you? Mm. Don't answer that. Not <laughs> this, is, this is not an open discussion right now. Rhetorical I'm not even like, give you, the, <laughs> give you the opportunity. You cannot, unless you're outright offended by something, you cannot tell me that. All right, all right. Then this
1: sounds like a very appropriate book. Good good thing you've read it. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, I had some things I'd mentioned over the past month because that kind of got all lumped together as just general themes for May. And so uh, one of my goals for May, I'll start from the top of my list, which this one is boring, but uh, again, Rocket League related. I just wanted to get platinum in all the playlists. So I did that, I've fallen, I'm basically just rising the line between low plat high gold in ones, but at some points it's platinum, so I'm like, eh, yeah, it counts, good enough. And the weird thing is that my twos is almost diamond, and I'm like, how am I so bad at the other two game modes, but twos is going well? Whatever. Uh, so that, that happened. I wanted to get something off my shopping list from this past weekend, and I did, and it was a bunch of camping gear. So now I actually have like a tent and a sleeping bag, the basics that I need. There's this weekend, my plan, this is one of my do beggars, is pick up a water treatment product. So um, I'll basically look at what the offerings are, the different, because the different ones have different mechanisms and styles of how you use them. Find out the one that makes the most sense for how I want to use it and how I want to pack and, and that sort of thing. Pick one out and I'll take care of that. There's still some other things on the list that I'll need before going on a big hike, but this was a good start. So that's been good because I've been putting off For context, for anybody who doesn't know. I have done a lot of really long hikes where I'll hike for like a 12-16 hour day, but I've never done an overnight hike because I didn't have any of the equipment for doing an overnight hike. So one of my plans for the end of the month is to, I swear, things happen as soon as I start podcasting like, oh, dogs are barking, motorcycles are going by. People are screaming in the hallway for no reason.
0: Maybe the dogs just want to go camping with you. Maybe just yeah. that.
1: It's like, oh, he's yeah. ready to go overnight camping. That's my favorite. So anyway, uh, end of the month, one of the goals is to do the Juan de Fuca Marine Trail. That'll be an overnight hike, but my hope is that because it's kind of simplified, it won't be too bad as a initial introduction. So like they have bear boxes along the trails at the, camp- at the campsite, so I don't have to worry about you know roping up my gear and that sort of thing to keep it out of the way of bears. Uh, and it's each campsite is fairly close to a road, so if I really need to get back out at some point because I have run out of food or done something stupid, I can at least more easily find my way out than if I'm in the middle of Strathcona Park, which. That's my plan for later, once I've had a practice run with this one. Uh, but for this month, that's the goal. Uh, I continued to learn more about camping, which was just generally something I needed to do. Uh, Wanting to eat more fruit, I've been eating apple a day, so I haven't seen a doctor since last week. I think we're doing well.
0: Yeah. I... All doctors hate this guy. That's
1: right, <laughs> doctors hate him. <laughs> Uh, This was not a goal, but I wrote a bunch of documentation, and since we recently did a documentation episode, I felt like I should just bring it up, so that, you know, practicing what I preach. uh, We need to update our development process at work, and we had a meeting to discuss it, and the action item upon leaving the meeting was for me to write down everything we agreed upon, and so I did that. So that was one of the big things, and my job is Part of my job is being the release manager, so anything that makes my life as the release manager easier something I'm very willing to document. So we now have new standards that we have to follow. Hopefully it makes my life easier. I obviously had the goal of going on a date in May, and it got real close, but she bailed. So, uh, unsuccessful, but I tried. So, doing better. I always take so long with these. You're so much more efficient, I just rant. well because
0: I just don't do enough better (laughs) that's the problem you're doing much better in life and that's why you have much more doing better Well, maybe or
1: I just make smaller goals but things I want to do better at uh, I'll try to not make this sound as depressing as it was when I explained it again (laughs) my goal is or one of my things I want to do better just a sort of a mindset thing is whenever I make plans with people I want them to be things that I would be happy to do on my own and will commit to doing on my own if they are not going to show up. So, in other words, don't make plans with something that, to do something that I would otherwise not do. And so, my hope with that is I'm struggling a lot right now with people not being available, people having other things going on, people bailing on plans, people being hard to get a hold of. It's not great for facilitating social interactions, and what it's led to is a lot of me saying, oh, my afternoon is going to be doing this thing with this person, and then if something comes up and they're not going to be there, I now have nothing to do, but I didn't plan something else. So that's real depressing when you don't see people a lot. So what I'd like to have now is like, all right, whatever I say I'm going to do with that person, if they bail, I'm still doing that thing. And my hope here is twofold. One, I'll actually still have something to do, and two, if I meet anybody there, there's a decent chance that they're the sort of person who would do that again in the future. So I did this a lot with climbing back before I stopped going to the climbing gym. I would go to climbing. Oh, I met somebody at climbing. Turns out I'm going to see them next time I go climbing too because they're always there at the same time. And now I have a friend at climbing. So that's been a big, a big thing that I've missed. If I can apply this to other things, that would be great because it worked really well there. I'm going to... After taking May off from AWS stuff, I'm going to start preparing for the AWS Developer Certification. So it'll be initially remembering what I forgot and then regretting this decision uh, and studying a bunch. And I'm at least gonna get two of the three certifications this year. After doing the first one, I was actually preparing for the first one. I was like, I don't think I want any more of these. But it was very useful, I did learn a lot. So I'm still gonna do the next one, even though I don't want to. And yeah, water treatment solution. That was one of the things I already mentioned. And I want to start learning a new song on guitar, because I actually haven't tried learning a new song since the last time on the show I said I was gonna learn a new song. So I'm gonna say it again and I will go learn a new one. I'm thinking something by Bare Naked Ladies. And other than that I
0: But last time you did Lonely Island and I loved it. Yeah,
1: yeah, so I did that and I still I still enjoy playing that. I I think I may have actually learned Castle on the Hill since then, so I play that a lot, but I I would like to learn a Bare Naked Leggy song, because I listened to them a lot growing up. Uh, Stephen Page would be a hard voice for me to emulate and try to sing, but Ed's voice is very easy, so I could always do a song that he sings, and wouldn't be too bad.
0: That's it! That's my list. Wow, so what I'm expecting is specials on the Do Better Deaf show where it's just you singing <laughs> and we put out six minute clips right. and then it'll be like SoundCloud s- slash NW Calvary friends. No, I don't,
1: think, I don't think that's my current trajectory. I'm not a very skilled musician, I just enjoy doing it
0: Yeah, but our hundreds of fans <laughs> 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 they need to hear this the need to hear this right. Yeah.
1: well you know what I'll consider you, it just
0: this mm, likelihood oh. is low for the fans for the fans gotta for give fans. them what they need and what they want <laughs> alright uh, I'll <laughs> wrap it up there then um, yeah tune in next week for finding out how Nathan does on his song trajectory because who cares about tech frankly Yeah. yeah uh, development's dumb <laughs> It's now a music podcast. (laughs) Exactly. However, if you still like development, come talk to us next week anyways, uh, because we'll probably touch on some system design stuff. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye.